You're listening to Revenue Vitals with Chris Walker. Okay, we got some people rolling in. Hey, everyone. Sorry, I'm a couple minutes late. I just got off of another podcast live event, so I'll let some people come in. Um, this is another installment of the TikTok Live. We'll see what TikTok does. Sometimes we got hundreds of people in here. Sometimes we got like 10. Either way, I don't care how many people are here. I'm just here to help you all be more successful or do whatever you want to do. I uh, have you know come a long way in my career starting at like just an entry-level person and learning a bunch of stuff. And I feel like I took a different path when people see what I've accomplished, they say, you know, it must have happened so fast or you're really young, but I just think I made a lot of the right steps and I, I took a lot of the right opportunities and I did a lot of the right things. I did a lot of the wrong things too, but took a lot of the right steps and took a lot of the initiative that most people never take by going into a company and saying, hey, I know you hired me for this three months ago, but I should really be doing this. Here's why it's gonna help the company way more than what you have me doing. Or, hey, like, I know that you set me up to have this goal, but look, if we do it this way and this thing happens, then we should think it should be different. And so by elevating and thinking like an executive, by spending a lot of time taking initiative to do things that were outside of my job description, to do things like create content and learn how to do that from like 2012 to 2018, which then propelled me forward. When I started my company, I didn't have to learn how to create a video. I didn't have to learn how to write copy. I didn't have to learn the principles of SEO. I had all these things set up and then I could just be like, boom, let's go. Let's figure out what are we going to sell and then let's go sell it. If someone that wants to be a professional or an entrepreneur, like really focusing on multiple things, but really two buckets, you have product and then you have go to market or a lot of times demand creation marketing. You have these two buckets and then you have a top level. This is what most people miss. You gotta figure out how to understand customers. You must figure out over and over, how am I gonna be able to understand customers? How am I gonna ask them questions in a unbiased way? How am I gonna interpret what they're saying and then figure out what it means for me? How am I gonna be able to do that over and over so I can recognize patterns and then can translate back why these people are saying things so I know what to act on? If you are trying to be a business leader or you're trying to be an entrepreneur, being as close to customers is the advantage. It is the weapon. Most people don't do it. They either offload it to somebody else or they raise enough money where it doesn't become that important initially or things like that. And it's just like the understanding customers is the real win. I'm going to uh, jump in. We got a bunch of questions. Yeah, uh, great to see everyone here. This is great. How do you break into marketing? Just start marketing yourself and content on LinkedIn. So to me, what I did, and I think this is a really interesting idea, like when I started to do what most people consider marketing, I worked in the engineering department or the manufacturing department or the operations department. And what I did is I say, okay, I'm going to learn business during my nine to five. And then I'm going to go back and instead of I did take courses and I did read books and I did learn stuff like that. But I started my own e-commerce company when I was 23. And so, and then I figured out finance, marketing, uh, how to sell stuff, gross margins, supply chain, branding, how to do SEO and SEM. There's a lot of people that start to do marketing by talking about how they did marketing. I think that the best way to learn how to do marketing is to build a company that sells a commodity. It's not a lot of cash required to start up. It's a commodity, marketing sells commodities. 
and it's going to show you whether or not what you're doing is working or not. And if you do that for a year and you, and you use your own money, so if you're using your own money, then you're going to learn really quickly what's working and what's not, and how am I going to get customers, and am I driving enough revenue to pay back my cost of acquisition? And that sets such an incredible foundation to go out and then do B2B marketing. You can produce content if you want, but I did marketing for gosh, like eight or nine years before I produced any content about it. It's interesting to think that you would probably learn more doing it yourself than trying to get a job and do it with a company. Depends on how you can take initiative, but oftentimes that would be the case. Startup, how would you start the marketing team with limited resources? Um, I would hire two people I would hire a strategist that would be responsible for product strategy and category strategy, things like product marketing, go to market, customer insights, positioning, messaging, category design, stuff like that. And then I would have another role that would lead my revenue R&D function. It would probably just be a one person team at that point. And that person would partner with the sales leader to evaluate and develop new revenue programs that drive results. I would have those two people and then I would build around those functions as I go. What would I focus on on those two teams? Um, in the product strategy and category strategy area, if this is really early stage and you have limited resources, I would highly focus on product strategy and customer insights. So figuring out how to glean customer insights qualitatively and quantitatively in, in non-scalable and scalable ways. So I would focus on getting those insights, which is then gonna drive our messaging, our strategy and things like that. If I were both people, either the product strategy or the revenue R&D person, I would be highly focused on also figuring out how to sell the product. The best way to figure out whether your messaging works or not is to, is to try and sell it. And I think a lot of marketers never do that, especially product marketers that come up with messaging and throw it over to sales. Using it inside of the conversations, I think drives more innovation at the product marketing level. If um, I'm a the revenue R&D function with limited resources, I'm focused on figuring out how to start a podcast and then produce that to do events like the one we're doing right now, to create that into a podcast, translate that into a community, and then to publish that type of content on one to two social networks, most likely LinkedIn, TikTok, potentially YouTube or Instagram. And that's all I would be focused on with limited resources and figuring out how are we gonna get our point of view to resonate with the market and how are we gonna distribute that via dark social organically. How is Refine Labs reacting to the recession, if at all? Um, we have been adjusting our strategy on this since April of 2020. And so most companies felt the effects of what was now called, we didn't call it that back then, but now is known as a recession. So most people were feeling the effects as of April 1. The things that we've done to react is we've reevaluated our entire product. I think that when a economic downturn happens and demand for categories and things decline, that smart CEOs and smart business leaders go back to the drawing board and say, how are we gonna innovate on our product? And how are we gonna innovate on our business model? And so we spent the last nine months doing those types of things. And now in January, we're gonna release our revenue R&D framework. We've already released one product. We're about to release a second product that's a Salesforce app. And we have fundamentally shifted and changed the strategic vision of our business to be far more focused on to transforming companies in, from demand gen functions or lead gen functions into a revenue R&D function. And so transforming 
the uh, companies to be able to do that. And then having the breadth of products and services around that, that enables that transformation to happen with the goal of building a huge category called revenue R&D that most people use, most people have been doing demand gen. There's been a demand gen category for 15 years that includes analyst firms and vendors and internal teams and agencies and all this ecosystem built around demand gen over the past 15 years. And I just told my team, like, someone else did that 15 years ago. Why shouldn't we be the company that shows companies the way they should work for the next 15 years? And so that's how we've adjusted over the past 12, nine months since this has been happening and really excited for the strategic adjustments that we've made. And I think that these types of times and this it shows that these types of times when demand is declining, it really levels the playing field. It allows a small company to make the right strategic choices, to make some bold moves, and to actually gain a lot of ground on bigger companies because the playing field is more level. This is the time where people break out of their careers. This is the time where companies break out of their category. When things get hard, it's where, it's where a lot of the winners shine. Do you think that it's easier or harder to be a marketer marketing to other marketers? I believe that it's definitely easier to be like the person that you're marketing to. But I don't think that it's required. I think that I'm like marketed just as effectively as I market to marketers today as when I was marketing to emergency medicine physicians in 2017. The reason is because instead of me being on here live, I had Dr. Rada and Rob DeBlasi and other PhDs and MDs that were like my customer. And my job was to host them and interview them so that my, my audience could get the most value out of it. So I think that the skills are 100% transferable, but I think it's undeniable that when you are like your target customer, whether that's marketing to marketing, whether that's physician to physician, that when you do that, you have a deeper level of trust and credibility than as a marketer marketing to an emergency medicine physician where you probably need a different host, a different quote unquote spokesperson. How would you go about getting customer insights when departments are territorial with customers? Lazo, Chris, I've dealt with this too, right? You're a marketer at a company and then you got a current customer and you want to go down and visit them and see how things are going and do market research and get insights and on the product and things like that. And all of a sudden sales is like, hey, that's my account. Like, don't touch my accounts. Don't visit my accounts. And then you get blocked. Um, I think that this is still, uh, despite how ridiculous that that sounds, and it pains me to say that, that that's how it operates in many companies still today. I think that this is more of a problem with the company mindset and organizational design than it is with you managing an individual relationship on the sales team or other team that's blocking you. And so like, things that could be happening. The company doesn't really understand what marketing means. It means lead gen to them or something like that. The executives don't really understand what marketing means. Therefore, in the future, they're going to lean more towards sales oriented. They're gonna lean more in other directions. Um, and if those are things that resonate with you, my recommendation would be to use these as signals that maybe this isn't the best place for you to grow. And so that's, potentially one option. It also could be that like, hey, Chris, like 
I know you're in here to be a marketing manager, but Susan over there is the director of product marketing. She's the one who visits customers. I don't know exactly the situation, which is why we're going to move to a more live format where we can go back and forth. But some of the, the exact signal that you're getting, I got in 2017. I stayed at that company for two more years, but this signal alone was the signal that I should have left. Do you think it's too late to build a personal brand on LinkedIn? No way. I, abs I absolutely don't think that it's quote unquote too late. And honestly, it's almost never, it's almost never too late. It's just whether you're comfortable building and being small and posting content that people don't like while other people have already grown. So like, it's never too late for you to go out and try something or learn something or do something unless you subjectively decide that it's too late, which is often you creating some level of an out for yourself as a disguise for not being secure or confident in yourself. And so like, I don't think that it's too late to build a personal brand on LinkedIn or Instagram or TikTok. People that are good win. People that are good will be successful. Yeah, I would just say go for it if that's what you want to do. Podcast, audio, video, or both. All of it. Look at what I'm doing. Video every time, because video creates something, a level of context and micro social that most platforms, except for LinkedIn, even though I've been trying to get them to do it, most platforms are video first, mobile first, video first now. Um, and so if you're just creating a podcast with no video, I think that you're just missing a big opportunity for an activity that you're already doing. How important are buyer journeys for medium to large B2B SaaS companies? And what are the most important components? I think that there are a lot of flaws in how companies think about a B2B buying journey. And so instead of kind of like going into the definition of what you might think it is or what I think it is, I'm just going to sort of talk through how I think about this. The first thing is that like, there's no linear buying journey and buyers can move forwards or backwards at any point. And so it's very possible that, and then the only way that I look at it is as a customer in market, are they actively searching or actively demonstrating intent to buy the category of what we sell or directly from us? Or are they not in market? Are they not showing intent to buy? And it's very possible that a company goes in market, looks around and says, hey, this isn't the right time for us. And then they're back out of market. And they go back in they look at three vendors and they never buy and then they're back out of market companies and and individual buyers inside of a company can go through this back and forth process and it happens frequently if you look a lot of sales get closed on the second sales process with that account because they we tried to sell them they didn't buy then they left and six months later they just come back and buy and so I only look at it like they're in market or out of market and respect that companies can move back and forth through those two cycles I also believe that the way companies try and to understand a buyer journey is totally flawed using software-based attribution as the primary way. And then they call it first touch, when in reality, it's probably the 30th touch. It's just the first trackable touch. Um, and so I think first touch attribution is a misnomer, is poorly labeled and is misleading. Um, it's really just the first trackable touch and more than likely there's been multiple touches, dozens or hundreds of touches that have happened before that, that are actually the first touches that just don't get measured by software-based attribution. I believe that companies don't spend enough time asking their customers how they would prefer to buy 
And so I would spend time saying, what steps would you like to accomplish before you talk to a sales rep about buying this? When do you want to talk to a sales rep in this process? Where do you learn about these things? What sources of information do you trust when making decisions about how to buy these things? There's elements of like fixing attribution and then going far beyond attribution to actually generating customer insights in a proactive way. Most companies only generate customer insights to prove a point that they're already trying to understand or prove to justify a decision or to create a metric like NPS. And in reality, we should be going out to the market proactively saying we have hypotheses or we want to understand better so we can form hypotheses. And then we research and understand customers and that should be happening in an ongoing fashion. And I like that is something that typically falls under marketing, but never gets done in most companies because of how marketing is structured to be short term oriented. Cesar Cruz, love your LinkedIn post. Do you use a framework or checklist when writing posts? Cesar, I might disappoint you here. All I, all I do is I get back from the gym in the morning. I allocate 30 minutes to write a post. I pick a video that I'm inspired to write about and I write the post in 30 minutes. There's no checklist or framework or things like that, which I think allow, I set a defined time window, which forces action and forces me to actually get something out in that time, which I think is a good tactic. I probably go through a checklist in my head, but not often. And the main thing that I have to do is take a post that's 3,600 characters and I have to cut it down by 800 characters because LinkedIn still has a character limit. How would you go about messaging when you need to reach different stakeholders? I just absolutely love putting this back on what I do with my company. Out of all of the positions, like the people that could feasibly drive the decision to buy from my company are a CMO, a CRO, a CEO, a CFO, a VP of demand generation, a VP of sales, a maybe a head of RevOps, maybe a director at a big company. So you get what I'm saying. There's tons of different people that could that could buy. My message is exactly the same. My message is the same across the board because it makes sense to the business. And if it makes sense to the business, I don't care which stakeholder understands this because they're going to decide how it's going to be bought internally without without me knowing. And I uh, like, sure, maybe we'll get into some place where it's worth the effort to run an ad that's different to the CEO versus the CRO. But right now that's totally overkill and not necessary. And um, I think that most companies spend all their time iterating on that type of stuff. Like, oh, what's message different to the chief revenue officer than we're gonna do to the VP of sales because they're different. And then all of a sudden they spent six months doing shit and none of it worked because they, all they did was think about the messaging, not whether the channel's actually working or anything if the people actually want their product. Um, I think that what you're saying is like a is a future, very far future optimization, but is not needed in the early stages. Sure, if you're in a sales conversation, then I think that you should be tailoring your message based on what that specific customer says that aligns with what your product can do. In an actual sales conversation, I think that you should be tailoring the messaging. But I think at the quote unquote, what most people see as the marketing level or the demand creation level, I think that it's often overkill. Jake on here. Hey, thanks for the podcast last week explaining revenue R&D. I can't wait to implement it. Will the vault price increase once it's out of beta? Hey, Jake, great question. Um, honestly, we are not sure on the pricing model. 
for the vault. So uh, no promises either way, but I think that if you're trying to like budget for it, that I think around what we quoted you would be the, and it's on the website too, it's not secret, um, will be around what you can expect. Uh, but if things dramatically change in the market or the product or the offering, then it's possible that the prices could go up or down. So I'm kind of hedging here because we don't have a set day that we're gonna go out of beta. We're letting five to 10 companies in per month and continuing the beta and product development. There's no timeline on when the beta ends and there's no distinct idea of what the pricing and commercialization will be yet. In a startup, do you think marketing should write sequences for sales or should sales own that? I'll tell you this, if I was a single marketer in a company and they had 10 salespeople, they had four, a sales leader, three AEs and six SDRs. And the CEO came over to me and said, hey, our SDRs aren't performing. We need someone to write the sequences for sales. I would quit on the spot. I would quit on the spot. And the reason is because the real problem is that you have 10 fucking salespeople and no demand and you don't know who you're selling to and shit like that. And then you'd put a bandaid on it by going over and say, hey, marketing, write our sales sequences because that's a marketing thing, right? Not solving the real problem, which is that you way over hired sales and your go to market is flawed. Um, so if people told me to do that, just like if people, if the CEO came over to me one day and said, hey, we made the decision that we're gonna move the SDR team under marketing, and so therefore you'll take them over. I'll say, okay, what do severances look like? Because I'm not, we don't need this team. It's sad. People might react negatively to that statement, but the reality is that if you're a business leader and someone goes over to you and says, hey, here's 12 SDRs, it costs us $1.8 million in expenses to run this team and say, hey, you run it now. I would go back to them and say, there's way better things I can figure out how to do with $1.8 million than babysit this team. I'm going to reallocate these investments. And there's just simply, there's not a lot of people that have the conviction and have the confidence in that there's a better way to drive revenue today to be able to do that. But those types of signals for me are like, if you're an executive, you have to be operating and thinking and acting in the best interest of the company, not in the best interest of your function. Um, and I think a lot of people lose sight of that one too, and try and garner power and responsibility and direct reports um, as opposed to doing what's best for the the company hot take sales engagement platforms enable bad behavior am i wrong um, i've seen people call these platforms spam cannons before and so like yeah yeah but the reality is that the platform is how it's delivered, but the real enabler is the executive teams that decide to do it and scale it with terrible cost of acquisition and the VCs behind it that invest the money to enable it. The technology is never the problem. It's the people that decide how and why to invest and use the technology. I do agree that they enable bad behavior, but over time, what's going to happen? People continue to tune them out. Email algorithms will get better. Most of that shit will get blocked and it'll go away. And the companies that are still sending cold email at scale through sales engagement platforms in 2017 and didn't figure out any other ways to drive revenue are going to be in trouble. It's not like in the end, the customer always wins and the company that adapts to the customer always wins. 
to me, like the more people use sales engagement platforms and waste money and waste time and that type of stuff and and waste high quality buyers that said they want to buy and then they put them into an outreach sequence instead of ha giving them a, a meeting with an AE, companies can keep doing that stuff. It just makes the ones that are smarter get more ahead. How integrated should sales and marketing be? I uh, I spoke about this on a podcast. Uh, I think it's Rick or Richard. Just now, I'm not going to reiterate everything that I said, but to highlight it, I think that the overall function of marketing is broken. I think that marketing that people know it today should be divided into two to three distinct functions. You should then have a revenue R&D team and a revenue team, and that solves your sales and marketing alignment problems because the real problem in the misalignment is how marketing is structured and what's expected of it versus how the business is structured in order to deliver on it. It's set up to fail based on how the organization decides to put it together. And so I think that this would be a much, you can reference the podcast. I think it'll come out tomorrow with all the details on that. It was, I just talked about it for 20 minutes. I just can't do that here right now. Where should I start building a community? Try them all, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, or focus on one until it's successful, then move on to the next. I would recommend trying to build an event through Zoom that becomes the community. So the event is the community, and then you record the event, and then the event then goes into podcasts and one to two social networks downstream. And that would be the community strategy at the beginning. And then once you amass an amount of people that believe in your point of view and wanna be a part of it, then you could decide to centralize that in something like, uh, what do you got it? Like Mighty Networks or Slack or Discord or you know WhatsApp, any place that you wanna go. I think people go too far and they think, how am I gonna get people into my Slack community and not think enough about why would people join and invest their time in my Slack community? And the reality is that why people would join and invest their time is because they believe in the point of view and they perceive either relationships or other professional advancement that can come through it, learning, relationships, networking, new job opportunities, things like that. But the real reason that people join one community over another is what that community stands for and what types of people are in it. Can you clarify what's hero? I don't understand the part where you have to convert higher than 25%. Yeah, I was gonna get my laptop and show this, but it would take too long. So Bruno, inside of your company's sales process, typically let's just pretend that it's five stages. Some are six, but let's just pretend it's five, okay? So every opportunity that opens starts in stage one and then only a certain percentage of them move into stage two. So basically you have a filter that's going down where you start with 100, then you have 30, then you have 12, then you have six, then you win three deals, something else to that effect. And so if you start at stage one, you started with 100 and you won three, it's 3%. Stage two, you have 40 and you won three. So that's like 9%. Maybe stage three, you have, you know, let me try and do the math in my head. You have nine in stage three and you won three of them. That equals, it's 33% win rate. So stage three is the first stage greater than 25% win rate. And that becomes the hero stage. And so all pipeline then gets measured based on stage three for that pipeline source. Now, another element that makes this really interesting is that if you have that type of process coming through your uh, outbound engine, 
then maybe stage three is the number. But for your website, maybe your website comes in, they book a meeting automatically, and you actually win 26% of your stage one opportunities that come through your website. Then for your website, then stage one would be the definition of hero pipeline. And so what this does is it normalizes the definition and amount of pipeline credited to different pipeline sources based on the win rates of the deals. And so what happens in practice today, just to explain the problem, is that companies will generate $10 million in pipeline through their outbound channel by giving away gift cards and cold calling people and chasing around ebook downloads. And they measure pipeline based on when they booked the meeting, which would be stage one or stage, which is pretended stage two for this process. So then they got that and they only win 6% of those meetings, but they're calling it pipeline. And then over on the website, the website has people coming through, they're getting to stage two and from and they only created $5 million in pipeline. But from stage two forward, they win 40% of the deals instead of 6% of the deals. When the company goes and looks and tries to figure out where am I going to invest in the future, they're going to look and say, wow, outbound drove $10 million in stage two opportunities. It's driving our most pipeline. We should go and invest more in that, not looking that they only win it at 6%. And then if conversely, if you looked over, you'd actually drive more revenue with 5 million winning at 40%, 2 million, than you would at 10 million at 6%, 600,000. And so there's no there's no standardization or weighting of pipeline from pipeline source to pipeline source inside of a company or from company to company to be able to compare pipeline. That's what the hero stage does is it standardizes a definition of pipeline that all companies can follow to then be able to compare and analyze their data in a more objective way. How do I convince my director that we do not need to gate a webinar? <laughs> this kind of goes into the comment I gave earlier. And the reason that I say this to people is that like, if you know that you are a strong, capable marketer, then you shouldn't fear the idea that the place that you're at right now isn't the best for you or is holding you back. I've been in this position before where I'm like, oh, I have bills to pay. I have student loans. I can't leave my job and then you feel handcuffed to a job that's not serving you and you're not learning and is not pulling you forward. And it takes a, you have to be at a certain place with your level of confidence that, hey, I'm super talented. Hey, a lot of companies would be lucky to have me. That, hey, I don't need to deal with this bullshit where I have to convince the director that we don't need to gate a webinar that someone like Chris Walker hasn't been doing since 2016. Um, and so it's like, Whenever a question starts with how do I convince, oftentimes that's the signal that you're not in the right place. Sure, there are some things that you're gonna have a, like aligned executives where you need to convince them of something or you need to educate them on something, but smart people that are aligned with how the world works today and how buyers work today don't need to be convinced. They've already done these things. And so if you need to convince someone, it's a big signal that Maybe you don't want that to be your manager. Maybe you don't want that to be your director. So it's a tough subject, but I feel like telling the truth and I feel like inspiring people and letting people know that like, there are a lot of pretenders in this profession. There are a lot of people that have a great resume that can't do shit when they get into the company. And so if you can, if you're capable and confident in your skills that you understand how the world works, then you should be able to go out and find another job 
and probably still keep your job while you look. Lead to win higher than 3%, I get, not the 25 part, because you're looking at it at the, at the lead. You need to look at it at the opportunity. So like, like I mentioned, stage one, through your website, like we probably win it at 12%. Stage two, we probably win it at 27%. Because stage two is the first stage greater than 25% that we win, it becomes the hero stage for our website. And then our revenue R&D team and our sales team are both aligned that stage two pipeline is what we're optimizing for here because we win it at 27% and we can win it predictably. If we start jamming a bunch of garbage down there and we start winning it at 16% instead of 27%, then the goal is going to change to stage three, which makes it harder to achieve the goal. It forces alignment between what most people call marketing and sales today by having using pipeline, but connecting it with sales win rate to force alignment. Love your content, Chris. Thank you. Newer on the marketing sales side and your pod has been awesome. Hey, happy to help. Thanks for the comment. Thanks for being here. Is there still a place to collect emails in low intent lead gen, for example, on educative content? I think that sure, like if you wanna put a form on your website and say, sign up for our newsletter and absolutely crush the newsletter, like then do it. But like a lot of people do it half-assed or half-heartedly or with the wrong intent. And a lot of companies spend money to collect these emails and they spend $150,000 per email address using LinkedIn ads so they can send, you know, quote unquote, educational content that their customers don't care about. So when it starts to get into that behavior where the lead becomes what you optimize for, when you spend a lot of money to collect an email address so that you can email them later, where you bring in the wrong intent and you send sales emails that people opt out of, when you activate you know, sales processes based on an MQL score that gets created because someone downloaded your content, those are all the bad behaviors that happen from this. And so I found personally that just not doing it is the best way to be customer centric. But there's a lot of other ways that you could do it. Hey, sign up for product updates. Um, hey, join our email list for all of our events. Like we collect emails, but the goal isn't the email collection. The goal is that people need to sign up for our events, that people want to hear about our products. So I think there's a nuance to it here. The last thing that I'll say is there's probably two email newsletters that I read consistently, which means that most of them suck. So it's just like a, it's a competitive space. It limits you to only text. Other platforms you could do very well with audio and video. So it ultimately becomes a choice of what you want to prioritize. But if it was me, I it wouldn't be high on my priority list. And I would be deploying email based on the emails that I'm collecting through activities with other objectives than collecting emails to email someone. That was a little bit uh, of a head turner, but hope you got that. Announced that I left my job to start a done for you business for B2B. Do I have to post on LinkedIn to grow? You don't have to post on LinkedIn to grow, but you probably would grow faster if you did. So that is something to consider. What info is helpful for you before meeting a potential customer? Like it depends on what context I'm meeting a customer. If it's a potential customer that is trying to buy from me and I'm playing sales in this, in this uh, example, that honestly, like 
I look at their website. I understand if there's been any important triggers in their business, like their executive leadership has changed, this person is new, that they just raised money or other things like that. Oftentimes, when someone's coming in to me, they're going to give me a lot of that info when they send me a DM and ask for a meeting. So I'm already primed on what the most important things are. But the reason for me saying that is I actually, I don't like to have and I don't need a lot of information before meeting with a potential customer because it allows me to be curious and understand and ask them questions and understand from them what are the most important things for them. And so sure, like you can get armed with research, but often when you're armed with research, you're kind of trying to play the convincing game. And I play more of the, here's what we do. Is it something that's gonna be able, like what are your challenges? Is it something that's gonna be able to help you? to fit a potential customer. So I also do a far deeper discovery. Like a lot of people that go through a sales process with me feel like the first call is a free consulting session for 45 minutes, which is probably why I don't do so many sales conversations anymore because a lot of people got free consulting from me, but that's how I approach it, which is just so much different than how most sales professionals do is that I'm just trying to understand their business and, and let them know objectively, hey, we can help you, hey, we can't help you. Here's the reason. Hey, it sounds like you want something different than us. Let me point you in the right direction. So yeah, that's how I approach it. What do you think about a product marketing and sales enablement agency as a concept? I'm sure that it can work. I don't love it. Um, here's a couple of reasons why I don't love it. A lot of companies overinvest in sales enablement because they suck at creating demand. And so instead of going out and creating demand for customers and educating customers at scale, they try and overtrain their sales team that they probably overhired and doesn't have enough demand to be successful. It's like a Band-Aid. I think over, company, over time, companies will realize that and the sales enablement functions and investments will go down because they get solved in a different way. And I think that product marketing is a really challenging thing to do as a quote unquote agency. Um, there's definitely a way to do it. There's people that have been very successful doing it, so I'm not knocking it, but like the key in product marketing and what companies need is not how to do product marketing. They need to figure out how do I glean customer insights and use those insights to make smart, different, bold decisions. And so if I was going to create a company, a quote unquote agency, today, then I would be focused on being the best at customer insights and then communicating most actively why customer insights are so critical that companies don't use today. That's what I would do. But honestly, if you do either of those, like you can be successful doing a lot of different things. So just don't say because I said that would, wouldn't be what I would do. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't be what you do. Where do you think paid LinkedIn ads fit? We use LinkedIn ads to take my content that I've produced, that I published today, that got a quarter million views in 24 hours, that has 250 comments, that clearly is resonating with the market and my following, that we're then gonna take that video and we're gonna amplify it to our top target customers, top 1,000 accounts, executives in those accounts, and target them with LinkedIn paid. 
some people call that brand formants. I just hate that term. And I, I don't think that it's the right way. I don't look at it as brand or performance anymore. So a lot of B2C companies look like that. And a lot of lead gen people think like that. But brand versus performance, I don't think it's the right way to look at it. I think companies should be much more looking at it as creating demand and capturing demand, which can go across different channels. And just because you're running Facebook ads doesn't mean that you have to run performance marketing. Or just because you're doing a podcast that you're going to chalk it up as brand and measure, you know, and stuff like that. So I think that paid LinkedIn ads fit to to market your category to your top target accounts. That could be through content and other forms of creative to get that message across to the right people at the right set of accounts. It feels borderline ridiculous how much companies waste in other areas and don't spend $10,000 a month to target the executives at all their top target accounts with content and other forms of creative on LinkedIn while they spend $10,000 a month on email. They spend $100,000 a month on email addresses getting leads from LinkedIn. So yeah, I just think that there's people just don't look at this like, in a, I, I think people don't look at it critically. There's so much waste in the budget of revenue teams that like, and there's so many expenses that are far less effective than running LinkedIn ads to target accounts when done the right way. It's like close to the point right now where I think that it's inexcusable to not be running some level of spend of LinkedIn ads to target accounts. Once you're like more than a hundred people and you sell a product that isn't, you know, $7 a month, you sell a product that actually costs money. I think that there's almost no reason not to be using it, but that doesn't mean that go in there and send spam automated emails through LinkedIn Sales Navigator and run, you know, content syndication downloads on LinkedIn ads and get $150 email addresses. That's not what LinkedIn ads means. LinkedIn ads is a distribution tool to allow you to guarantee delivery of content to key stakeholders at target accounts. And when thought about that way, just better shit happens. Did you ever have to pitch yourself to a podcast or did you just get invites from day one? So I've never pitched myself as a guest as a podcast because honestly, I don't care that much. And I own the media. I don't need someone else's podcast to put me on, right? I can do it on my own. And so the best way to get podcast guest invites is to build your own channel. And then through the growth and success of your own channel, people see, hey, this person's smart. People are listening to him. People are sharing it. Let me have them on my podcast because I listened to it and it was smart. To get it, to get the best guests on podcasts, you can be like what most people do, which is hire a PR firm, which is basically hiring a BDR to try and get you on podcasts, which I think is, you can do it if you want, but it's just way easier and it works way better if you earn it because then when you're on that podcast, that you actually have interesting shit to say and you know how to say it effectively that resonates with people. Um, so I would not be focused on pitching to be a guest on podcasts. I think that's a bad strategy and you should be focused on how do I how do I create an own podcast, owned LinkedIn channel? How do I own owned media that then drives invites that allow me to get earned? Rich, happy to help. Appreciate your support. Michelle, what's up? How do you deal with execs who is obsessed with meeting KPIs? It drives short-term behavior. So this is the problem that I was trying to communicate. I don't think I did it earlier, but it's in a previous podcast that like companies use this function called demand gen as a proxy 
for another form of sales operations or sales development. It's real demand gen for most companies is operational support for sales, whether sales falls under demand gen or whether SDRs fall under marketing demand gen or under sales, it doesn't matter. The activities and the measurement of this function are all operational support for sales. How do we get the most leads at the lowest cost? How do we get the most meetings at the lowest cost? Which drives the focus on efficiency. Fuck, I need to get I need to get buyers for $50 each into a meeting. I guess I'm gonna have to give away a $50 gift card. That's the only way that I'm gonna be able to get meetings for that cheap. And then they never look at whether they actually win those meetings or not. And so they're not, the, it takes the team from being focused on the end result, which is how do we find the right things that drive revenue and moving them to an intermediate, which is how do we support our sales team with leads or meetings so that they can try and do sales to people that don't wanna buy. So execs that are obsessed with the meeting KPI, the best tactic here is to go and look at all of the places where the meetings are coming from and then show them that some sources of the meetings, your sales team wins one out of 25, that some sources of the meetings booked don't even sit on the meetings, 98% cancel, that there's also some places where you win one out of four meetings. And what this illustrates is that the meeting metric isn't the important metric and that there's distinct differences where you would make different strategy decisions if you were looking at it in a more holistic way versus focused on this middle term endpoint. And so this is like, welcome to the demand gen ecosystem. This is why I'm leaving this space because despite how much new thinking, new ideas, new frameworks I brought to that space, it all regresses back to the same dumb shit that people have been doing over time because you can't change the space in people's mind. And so I'm done playing by the old rules of demand gen that's focused on leads and meetings, that's handcuffed by attribution, that's not involved with C-level executives because they don't think it's important enough to drive the strategy, that's focused on ad channels or things like that, not holistically looking at the business and moving to a new space where I get to set the rules because what we're doing is 100% new and different and set the rules of what revenue R&D looks like, which is that companies should measure the success of net new programs based on ROI like they do with their product, not based on working dollars and CAC in month one. That this function should be revenue accountable, not meeting accountable. That this function in order to be revenue accountable needs new measurement systems and that just using multi-touch attribution software isn't going to get the job done anymore. And this is how a new set of revenue professionals operates in the future i believe that thousands of companies will install this type of function because the core issue like you're mentioning a symptom here our execs are obsessed with meetings but the root cause of the issue is that you need a revenue r d function but they are treating it like an, a sales operations function i heard that a lot of marketing companies waste 60 to 80 percent of marketing budget on linkedin ads I'm probably pretty sure that they do. I don't know exactly what you're quoting here where they waste 60 to 80% of the budget, um, but just because a company sells marketing technology doesn't mean that they're good at marketing. I'm just gonna leave that one there for a second because it's really true. Like some of the worst operating companies that I've analyzed in my time across all, you know, FinTech, HR tech, cybersecurity, marketing technology, sales technology, Sometimes the marketing technology are the worst. They're the companies that suck the most at marketing out of all of them. 
just people think that they're good because they sell marketing technology. But if you actually look at the underlying, like scrutinize what they're actually doing, it's really not good. Um, so yeah, I'm not surprised that a lot of companies waste 60 to 80% of their marketing budget on LinkedIn ads. It's not LinkedIn ads fault that companies waste their money on it. It's how the company decides to use the money on LinkedIn ads to pay for email addresses and not scrutinize it against revenue. That's why they waste money. It's never the channel's fault. It's always how the channel's being used. Do you see anything fundamentally different about demand generation for brands entering Web3? Um, it's uh, not a space that I'm ultra excited about, but I think that the same trends that you're seeing in B2B around community and demand creation and challenging outdated attribution models and stuff like that are all applicable to the work that you're trying to do there. Thoughts on sponsoring networking events for leads? Um, I personally wouldn't do that because I would just find a better way to use that money. But I recognize that in many companies, you're gold on leads. And so if your bonus is tied up with whether you get 50,000 MQLs in a year, and it's December, whatever, December 6th right now or something like that, and you got 47,900, and you got $100,000 left, and you think that you can get to the rest of your lead target by doing content syndication or buying a list from a sponsoring networking event or something like that, then odds are that you're going to do that activity and spend that $100,000 to get the rest of the leads because that's what you're gold on and the organization incentivizes you to do. So while I wouldn't do it, I recognize that most companies set people up to make the choice of yes to this question. So if I was going to do it, I would invest the money. I would track it like a revenue R&D program. I would measure the amount of leads. I would measure how many convert to sales. I would measure the ROI of the program. And then I would decide whether or not we're gonna keep doing it or not. No matter what you're trying to do, regardless of whether I say I would do that or not, by just treating it like an experiment and then measuring it against objective results over a period of three to six months and whether you're driving ROI on it, um, it just becomes very black and white. It doesn't, it's not opinionated anymore. No, it's data-driven which I think is something that we should try and strive to get to as revenue professionals. Damn, people, this thing went by really fast. Appreciate all you being here. The engagement just keeps getting better every week. I love you all uh, for being a part of this and for contributing and asking questions. So hope to see you back next week and uh, have a great rest of your week. See you.